Hey, folks, I know there are lots of business owners who listen to this show. Maybe some of you never planned on running a business, but now here you are. One thing you've always got to keep in mind is how much you're spending on your operating costs. That's one of the first things we had to keep in mind with WTF. And with things costing more today than they did when we started, you want to keep your expenses down. To reduce costs and headaches, be smart and use NetSuite by Oracle, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. Reduce IT costs, cut the costs of maintaining multiple systems, improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash WTF for more. That's netsuite, N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash WTF. All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers, what the fuck buddies, what the fuck nicks? What's happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast. Barry Levinson is on the show today. This is a very big day. Barry Levinson, a brilliant screenwriter and brilliant director, Oscar-winning director of Rain Man, Diner, The Natural, Bugsy, Good Morning Vietnam. He wrote for The Carol Burnett Show. He co-created Homicide, Life on the Street, and Oz. He and his wife at the time wrote uh, And Justice for All, which I watched the other night. Great fucking movie. He's the executive producer of the new documentary, Stars in Strife. And he's got a past at the comedy store. And for those of you who listen to me, know that's, you know, I got to know about that. How does he fall into the uh, grand history of the comedy store? Barry Levinson. We've been meaning to talk for a while, I think. I don't know if he knew that, but I know that we've been meaning to talk for a while. Hey, so I had Allie Brosh on this show a long time ago because I was so taken with her book, Hyperbole and a Half, and she's written a new book. It's been like seven years. Many of us were concerned about her well-being, but this is sort of coming off me kind of traversing the, the terrain of my mind and my heart and my spirit, and it doesn't generally go anyplace good. It it amplifies the struggle. All right, look, it's we're all compromised right now, and if you're alone, you got to be careful up there in your head. I mean, come on, it's a dangerous place, and if you got no one to kind of say like, "Yo, hey, hey, hey," you can't rely on television for the oh oh whoa, where, where are you going? What are you up to? All television does or whatever you're distracting yourself does is like, all right, let's just think about this now. This is what's happening now. But occasionally you need a little of the, whoa, 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 back up. What, what, what? You need that. But anyways, Brosh, Allie Brosh is one of the great sort of explorers and navigators of the mind and how it relates to the outside world. And she's got a new book out called Solutions and Other Problems. She works within animation, but her writing is tremendous and funny and dark and intuitive and uh, revealing and, and somehow um, calming. And, you know, if you got a dark mind and, a, and a, a damaged soul and a bit of a dark heart, she's a 
she'll soothe it, man. So, you know, if you want to check that out, this is an unsolicited plug for this fucking book because I love this woman so much and I love her work. Solutions and Other Problems by Ali Brosh. It'll make you feel better, maybe. Maybe. What could make us feel better? Now, like, I mean, are we, this is a theme of my life, you know, like, you know, kind of pushing back on hucksters and grifters and which is one of the reasons that obviously this president is an outside of being insanely fascistic and dangerous and, you know, kind of homicidally negligent on a mass scale. It's the grift, man. It's the con. It's the hustle. You know, it's this one part of the backbone of America, man. It's a fucked up thing. Like, I finally figured out a way that, you know, troll culture doesn't bother me. It's like these fucking Trump trolls. It's like if this this is what you're proud of, this is what you're you know, this is who you are. This is, you know, this is your voice in the world. Trump 2020. Fuck you, libtard. That's your voice in the world. That's your creativity. That's how you speak. Your heart It's just this weird, belligerent script of garbage that you dump out of your fucking brain fucked head you know, out into the fucking world, your sort of shameless, unapologetic loyalty and complete submission and you know, a, a, a surrender of your entire sense of self to a fucking belligerent grifter who offers you nothing but the feeling of hate. It gives it definition. That's who you are. That's your lack of creativity. That's what you do with your American spirit, where you have the freedom to find something for yourself, to carve out your own life, to figure out how you fit in and be part of the fucking cultural fabric. You unimaginative turds. So I watched Being There the other night. That was great. It actually holds up. It's a beautiful movie. And some unbelievable. Shirley MacLaine, Peter Sellers, unbelievable. Just throwing that out there. Had a dream, had a dream. I had a, a dream the other night. And I guess at some point, I have to start looking at these as visits from my uh, my ex who passed away May 16th. Lynn did, Lynn Shelton. Beautiful spirit, beautiful person. But occasionally she visits me in dreams and I wake up and I'm always upset, but I, you know, I have to frame it with a certain amount of gratitude that, you know, she's still hanging out. She's still coming by. But the dream I had the other night was powerful in that it, it, it's almost, it, it almost, it was a visit. I think they are visits when you lose somebody and they come around, depending on what happens. If it's fairly clear and the dreams I've had about her have been clear. They're usually just like she's here and I'm like, oh my God, I thought you were dead and she's not. And I wake up and she is. But this one, I it was just, she was just sitting on the edge of a desk, like facing, I feel like it was a classroom, but I don't know if there was anyone there or it was empty or what, but she was looking out and I approached her and she just was like not paying attention to me. And I said, hey, hey, you remember that you love me, right? And then she turned to me. She's like, yes, of course. And I said, well, you were, you were, you were dead. And I started to cry. And I'm like, you were dead for like days. You were dead. And I'm crying. And she said to me, oh, that must have been very traumatic for you. I'm sorry. 
And I just was crying. And I said, I love you so much. And I woke up. And um, that is what she would have said. <laughs> Happy to see her. Look, you guys, this was a, a, a great conversation that I had with Barry Levinson. You know, he, he looks great. He's like 80. He's holding up. He's lucid. He looks 60. And he's, uh, you know, he's, he's done some big movies and he's been around a long time. And it was a real pleasure and an honor to talk to him. Uh, the documentary that he executively executively produced, <laughs> the doc that he executive produced, Stars and Strife, is now available on most video on demand platforms, and it just started running this week on Stars. This is me talking to uh, Barry Levin. Sometimes I wish I paid more attention in school, or in some cases, any attention at all. There are probably a lot of things I could have gotten more out of, like literature, and now it's probably not in the cards to go back to school and study the classics. But luckily for us, there's a new podcast called The Foxed Page that dives deep into the best books of all time. This is basically like the best possible college English class, but more relaxed and fun. No pressure of grades or needing to prepare something to say in class. It's only the books you want to read and know about presented by best-selling author Kimberly Ford. Everything from Cormac McCarthy to Madame Bovary, from classics like Frankenstein to modern hits like Lessons in Chemistry. I love Ireland, but I missed the boat on James Joyce. The Foxed Page has a three-part series on Dubliners, and that's a pretty great starting point. Want to get the most out of what you read? The Foxed Page is for you. Get it now wherever you get your podcasts listen where are you barry i'm in uh, la now oh yeah so you're uh yeah. hold up trying yes. to breathe uh, it's terrible i'm uh, <clears throat> i've been having trying to clear my throat all morning it's i mean this is a uh, horrific yeah, it's like it's devastating in the way where like uh, it's just one layer of garbage uh, over another. I know. <laughs> there doesn't seem to be, you know, I, I there just doesn't seem to be a bottom to it. No, it's uh, every day there is another uh, another thing to get depressed about. Right off the bat, right off the bat, boom. The president of the United States is basically saying, yeah, well, maybe, you know, two to three million people, you know, should die, but then things are going to be good and the stock market will just be great. It's, uh, it, I, I can't, it, it really is daunting uh, on a day-to-day basis. No. Uh, in terms of like, uh, there's, and I, I watched, uh, I watched your documentary, the one you produced, The Stars and Strife, and then I've watched, uh, I just watched The Social Dilemma last night. Yeah. Have you watched, have you watched that? I haven't, I haven't seen that one yet, no. I think for people like my age and your age and these different generations that really, you know, to really sort of wrap your brain around the uh, the weaponized uh, social networking platform, the algorithms and how they fuck people's brains. It's like it's it, it's it's not hopeful. There, there's no hope there. But I mean, it does help you understand really what's going on, because I think it's a generational thing. I think to protect yourself from these to actually protect yourself from. Uh, the mind fucking, it's a lot, it's a lot trickier than we think. 
and it, and it has to do with the technologies that you know we've had to adapt to in our lifetime and the kids don't give a shit so it's sort of no. i don't know whose job it is because these machines are just running on their own volition it's uh it, it, it it's it's scary on so many levels because it's hard to uh when you read certain statistics and you go, uh, for instance, there was someone sent me a, an email the other day that um, I think it's like uh, high school students, like 40 or 50 percent never heard of the Holocaust, just as an example. And you right. go, uh, how's that possible? I mean, just, you know, it's not like you have to understand all of the things, but how is that possible that you don't know that it's just a piece of information? Right. Right. And, and so if you say that you don't know that, then you're, you're saying, what don't you know about now? How much about now that you don't, it doesn't register in your brain? That, yeah. That's what frightens me. It's an elaborate shallowness that there, there's this, you know, that people don't yeah. know things in depth or that, you know, it's sort of like, you know, like I could see a younger person saying like, wait, Hitler was the guy with the mustache. Right. And that's the depth Right, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, he was that's right, he had the yeah, and yeah, that was it, yeah, yeah, but uh, and also being like a Jew, it's like, you know, that's then there's that whole other dimension. It's like, when do we have to leave? Are, is anyone gonna know? <laughs> <laughs> is, yeah. is someone gonna alert us all? That... <laughs> yeah, pack, pack yeah. up. <laughs> <laughs> And I, I can't help but think about that shit. You know, I thought about it right away you know, at the beginning of it with all that fascist theater of him signing things and Bannon sitting there. I'm like, you know, I know, <laughs> you know, we're not going to be the first to go, but you know, we're on the list. <laughs> yeah, I know. That is frightening. It is. <laughs> it's overwhelming. And, and, and at the same time, you know, it's, you know, there used to be like you could say satire. And it's hard to have satire when things are this crazy. You know, I mean, uh, it, it's literally I, I think we're getting close to the Marx Brothers with Fredonia. Oh, that, yeah. I, I think that's where we're going in a sense where nothing makes any sense at all. Nothing makes any sense at all. And, and that is the nation's song. And there's a proud it's a pride to it. Yeah. Things have become the farce. Of, of reality has sort of uh, hijacked any capacity for satire because satire gets absorbed very quickly it's, it, and it's very, it's very hard to do it effectively that, where it will have any impact. I mean, if you think about your movie, you know, Wag the Dog, which I think still obviously will hold up, but, uh, but like everything's moving so much quicker. How do you satirize, you know, what's going on? Because he's, he's his own buffoon. I mean, that's, it's, it's, it's a very strange thing that the president is a clown, you yeah. know, to most of us. But it's like you it, it's hard to, to do anything funny about him because you don't want to trivialize the horror show that's happening. Uh, yes. And you can't actually do something funny about him because he's 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 that already that crazy. So you can't. It's there, hard. There's no way to go with a parody because that's him. Yeah. We watch it on a day to day basis. Yeah. I find myself watching older comedies just to enjoy, you know, uh, back in the day when there was timing and there was uh, jokes and stuff. Like, yeah. And I'm not really that guy, but lately I'll go, I'll, I'll watch, uh, I'll watch the old comics on on Johnny on YouTube. I'll watch uh, Rickles, uh, Buddy Hackett, Dangerfield. I'll just, you know, just to hear that timing, you know, just to see that work. But there was a real craft. Oh, of you know, course. It was a craft. And now, now we're in something. I don't even know how, how 
I it'll take maybe another 50 years if somebody could define this era that we're in. And I, I, I find that so helpful when people say, you know, history will show. And I'm like, you count. You're, that's optimistic that there's going yeah. to be history, number one. Yeah. And number two, whoever's writing it is going to be of a, of a sound mind. Yeah. No, look, I thought that the comment in uh, in David's piece in Stars and Stripes is about that a democracy, the longest a democracy has uh, lasted is 250 years. And we are now up to 250 years. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's a, it, it's a frightening thought that that's as long as a democracy has ever lasted. And we yeah. are right up there at that point, And we are facing this kind of collision of of madness that we can't even get out of our own way. And it's not just Trump alone. And I think that's where the documentary is so good because it's not it's not chasing just him. It's just yeah. that we are so dysfunctional in general that yeah. we cannot actually work as a democracy at this point in time. Right. Yeah. And that, and that it's just amazing how like uh how how many sort of craven fucking small time grifters have uh, are having their day in one place, <laughs> right? And the and the uh, the idea of capitalism, you know, when it, uh, I think that the 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 focus seems to be in the doc that you know that that there is a way for capitalism to function uh, uh, for everyone, you know, if it's done responsibly. But I, the, my problem with a lot of that free market thinking is, for some reason, no one factors factors in the uh, the greed element and the. Uh, complete moral bankruptcy of people who who want money and power but you know i don't know maybe it'll level off it, you would hope but i don't know uh you know because the bottom line is sort of dumb everything is about the bottom line yeah you know yeah. and and i don't know how that changes i mean uh in terms of look there is no crazier decision made by say uh with citizens united uh, as a concept, you'd say, hey, why don't we just have this? And then people can spend as much money as they want to donate to a to a, a candidate, you know, just as much as you want. So if you want to donate a hundred million dollars for a candidate, yeah, that's that's fine. And you go, no, no, no. Doesn't that sort of mess with the concept of the people? Mm. Otherwise, the hundred million is there a very few people be, can donate that and therefore they're going to get something special they're going to get something that you're not going to get because right. they're spending a more money than you. They own the guy. And they yeah. own the guy. And, yeah. and somehow that became like, oh, yeah, that makes perfect sense. And this comes from the Supreme Court. Yeah, you know I mean? That's how you came up with something that idiotic. I, I just it, it boggles my mind. I'm not some kind of, you know, uh, somebody that understands all of this kind of the legalities of things or whatever, but on, on the basic level, it makes no sense that you can spend as much money as you want. Well, I think everybody's in their own bubble in terms of their decision-making, including the Supreme court. Yeah. I, but let's get back to simpler times, Barry. Um, oh yes. <laughs> <laughs> when I was a, a a doorman at the comedy store, you know, I, I got, I was, I was on a lot of drugs at the time, but it was in the late eighties. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I used to just fester and, and look at all the names on the wall. And I just, I, I always saw your name on the wall and I'm like, what did he do here? Was he here? Cause I got very in, I was in deep at the comedy store. I, I, I believed in it. I believed in the idea of it. I, I thought that it was a magical place in a very dark way. And I really kind of focused on all the names on the walls wondering, you know, how do they fit in? 
So how do you fit in over there? Well, here's, here's the short version of that. Uh, when I was doing um, writing for, say, uh, uh, the um, Carol Burnett show and other shows, I used to have a partner, Rudy DeLuca. And Rudy DeLuca uh, had uh, written for Sammy Shore. He'd write jokes for him. And uh, one day, Sammy Shore came to Rudy and said, uh, Frank Sennis has the old Zeros, which had been closed at that point, and said, there was a the small room, and he said, he'll turn it over to me. This was Sammy Shore talking. And uh, as I have a little nightclub. And Sammy said, uh, Rudy said to Sammy, uh, but nightclubs are dead. You know, Sammy, nightclubs are dead. It's over or whatever. He said, yeah, but he'll give me the place and the little venue and I can blah, 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 whatever. And Rudy said, to him, well, why don't you do it like the improv in New York? Just have that kind of place. And yeah. that's became the comedy store. And oh, so you you were you were brought in before Mitzi even. Oh, yeah, yeah. But, you know, he was Sammy was married to Mitzi. Right. And but she wasn't involved initially. Yeah. And so that was the beginning of the comedy store. And it used to be in the very beginning, you can just show up and, you know, nobody's on stage and then you can go on stage and this person or sometimes. And then what happened is like Richard Pryor would wander in and he would get up and he would do something. And and some of the more named uh you know guys and then some people off the street literally just went up etc and then it got more formalized as it went along and then what happened is in the divorce between sammy and missy uh sammy gave it up because he wasn't really he didn't have that uh, managerial quality that missy had and she yeah. was much better at structuring it and everything else and then she ultimately took over and really ran it but were you doing stand-up I started when, uh, it sounds crazy. I started, I was in an acting group and, uh, which I didn't want to be an actor, but I was there anyhow. I was literally there just hanging around, uh, and just absorbing it. Which I, one? That any, I, it was a guy named Jack Donner and it was on uh, the Oxford street, right off of Santa Monica and Western. There was a uh -huh. little theater upstairs. And so I did that. I didn't really want to, um, Oh, I came out to L.A. I didn't know what to do with myself. I ended up at the beach. You were you were from Baltimore. From Baltimore, but you but so but like well, let's go back there for a minute. So, but you knew you wanted to be in show business. Had you done some work? What what was the situation in Baltimore other than what we know from uh, Avalon and Tin Men and you know, like no, I I didn't want to be in. I had no idea about show business. I didn't even have a clue. I had no, uh, never even thought about the idea of of writing or directing or anything. Nothing. How old were you when you came out here? I was um, around 22. So what were you doing in Baltimore before? I was in Washington and I was working at a uh, uh, television station. Well, that's show uh, business. Well, and <laughs> if you think about it now, <laughs> but here's what happened. I was at this, I was at American university and I, I only took courses that would interest me. And there was one about, there was a course on television. I figured, well, and, and here's my motivation. That sounds easy. You know, that yeah. won't be a hard thing. Not right. a lot of studying. It's television. It's a, okay. And so I ended up doing that. And there was a professor who ran this class. And I, I did this little show thing uh, as an exercise. 
And he took a liking to me and he got me a job at WTOP, which is Channel 9 in Washington, D.C. Yeah. In a training program, you get $50 a week and you, and you, you do everything. You run the teleprompter. You make slides for the news show. I work the hand puppets on the Ranger Hal show and <laughs> Ranger Oswald Hush. Robert, Dr. Fox. And I did all those things. And that's what I started doing. And you, I started uh, one of her jobs is to roll the commercial breaks yeah. into the late show and the late, late show. You remember yeah. they used to have. So those. you were the sucker that had you were the only one in the studio. <laughs> Let yeah, the I'm kid there. do it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> See you there until like two thirty in the morning. You <laughs> yeah. know, and the screw ups that went on, et cetera, in that particular period of time. And uh, but uh, I'm going to sidetrack. But here's like a thing that was amazing to me is that I always wonder about the audience out there because you never you don't see an audience. You yeah. just do it, and you go, "Is anybody actually watching?" Right. And I I only say this because one time one night they the, the late show. And uh, and it was called the the it was a Glenn Ford and the Man from the Alamo. It it started and the thing is going on and the first commercial break that comes up, it would say like a guy goes out the door, uh, door slams, go to the commercial break, right? Yeah. And it was that, and all of a sudden the the leader came up. So something is out of whack. Right. So instead of saying why is this the cue wrong. Now at five minutes to twelve, we go back to the movie. Yeah, and it goes the end. Now it's it started at eleven thirty. At five minutes to twelve, it says the end. Yeah, and so we realized we got the last reel up first rather than the first reel. Right. So you go to the <laughs> go to the announce booth, and the yeah. announcer says, "And now for the beginning of the man from the Alamo," <laughs> <laughs> and then the movie starts. Right. Not one phone call to say, what the hell is going on here? You show the end of the movie first and then the beginning. Nobody called. No one. Uh And you go, are people actually watching? Is there an audience or do or do they just not care? It doesn't make any difference if it's out of the story is at that hour. Maybe 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 it's just (laughs) like for me that that resonates because I used to watch. I used to like like I still like coming upon things that are already on. Like as cuz now you can start anything anytime there's no channels. Yeah. But I used to like turning on the TV and and being in the middle of something cuz it right. for some reason it made me feel like well there's got to be someone else alive who's showing <laughs> this movie. So maybe <laughs> maybe that comforted people like you know the the one other guy that's up fucked up. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well you know when you say that Mark when I, we were kids and we went to the movie theaters we didn't know when the show began. You know, we'd be eight years old. You'd go yeah. to the movies. Sure. Saturday. And you just walked in and you sat down. So you, you never saw a movie from the beginning. Yeah. And so, and then there'd be, you know, cartoons and things. And then to come back to the movie. And then there would be that point where we would turn to one another. Is this where we came in? Is this, is this, <laughs> this where we came in? And they go, oh, yeah, yeah. But wait for Let's see the, see the fight scene again, you know? <laughs> right, and, then yeah, you, yeah. and then you would leave. And so right. we never saw things from beginning to end as kids. Because yeah. we never knew when a show began. You know, we went to the movie theater. It wasn't like, oh, at nine, yeah. you know, yeah. at this it was time, good. Your parents just time. wanted to know where you were for a couple hours. Yeah. They'll be in there. And yeah. we could go do some stuff. So, so you had some experience, at least with hand puppets and and uh... hand puppets and all that. And then, I, 
and working on the news shows and, and watching movies anyways. You got to sit there and watch movies. I saw two movies a night for almost a year. And, and that, in a sense, without thinking about ever getting into the business, I just started watching films I had never heard of. Like I saw Citizen Kane. I never heard of Citizen yeah. Kane. Yeah. And so I'd see some of these movies and I'd, I'd, I'd see Preston Sturgis films and everything else. Things I had never heard about. No one talked about. And that, that began to get into my head without me consciously thinking about it. So right. when I came out to L.A., I ended up at the um, down at the beach in Hermosa Beach, Santa Hermosa, Monica, Hermosa Beach, yeah. beach down there. And um, I was starting to hang around with uh, this guy named George. And uh, George and I would hang around. At one point, he, you know, he, he didn't have money. I didn't have any money. And a lot of people, we were just, you know, you just get by. What year is this? Like 1970? This would be, no, this was about 1968. Wow. So it was crazy here. Yeah, yeah it was totally nuts. I mean, it was like the... the it was like a, a total crazy period and great fun. Just like hippies you know? and drugs and weed and, you know, people. And all of, everything was going on and the, the music was changing and it was all things were going on and everything was sort of very loose. Like, uh, it, for instance, like, you know, now you hear about Laurel Canyon and the right. things, uh, but we would literally go over there and come up into the area and we would go up. And you just walk along the streets and you hear some music and you wander in, you sit around and people are, you know, you know, smoking joints, whatever, dancing, carrying on or whatever. And there yeah. would be those people like so from, you know, Crosby, Stills, Nash, Young and, you know, all of those people. And you didn't even know who everybody was at that point. You know, but it was, it was just, just like it was just people walking through the canyon, huh? Yeah. Wandering around. Yeah. <laughs> but backing up for a second. Uh, at the beach one day, George comes up to me and he says, down in Hermosa Beach, he said, look, my car broke down and you have to go up into Hollywood. And uh, can I borrow your car or you want to drive me? And I said, OK, I hadn't been up to Hollywood yet. So, I said, OK. So I drive him up there. We pull up to this building. And he says, come on in. I said, well, what are you, what are you, what are you going to do? He said, well, I want to sign up for this. Uh, I want to check out this uh, acting group. Yeah. So, oh no no no! Please, I'm gonna George. I'm gonna stay in the car here. I'm not gonna. No, it's, I'm not doing that. Yeah. He said, "Come in. I, I'll feel obligated to come in." So I went in, and uh, I'm watching it. It was interesting. You know, there's they're doing exercises and things and little scene study things, and I was rather sort of fascinated by it. George signs up, riding back down. He says, "Why don't you join? You know, why don't you become part of the class? You know, then we can just." You know, we can share a ride. So I'll drive. Sometimes you drive because it's like an hour to get back there. Yeah. I said, George, I don't want to do that. He said, that'll be a kick. There's some good looking girls. Wow. Some, it'll be fun. Whatever. Yeah. Talks me into it. So now we go up and back. George starts getting bored. Doesn't care for, for to the class anymore. He doesn't want to go. Right. Okay. So now I'm going up and back by myself. And I'm saying, George, for God's sakes. I mean, now I'm going, you're not involved in this. I said, I think I'm going to move up into the Hollywood area because it's too far to keep going back and forth. So, you know, I packed up and I moved out. Now, here's the thing. I try to explain to people, you know, nowadays. Uh, back then, when you moved, you lost contact with a person. because There wasn't a phone. You know, we didn't have phones, you know, that we could, or if we moved, you know, we didn't have that. So the telephone, we were always using telephone booths to call one another because, you know, we were living on the cheap. And 
So I get involved in the acting class. I get more involved things. I'm doing stuff and spending all the time there. And there's a guy named Craig T. Nelson, and he's in the class. And we're hanging out. And we started doing some little improv things together. And we start, you know, getting some laughs in the class. And I said to, uh, you know, Craig, maybe we can put some material together and we'll play some clubs just to make some money. Because, I mean, I, was, I had no money then. And, uh, and he was working in a bank. And so we started to play some clubs, right? With and your so we, with the routine, it's uh, yeah. We're, we're putting team. little yeah. We're like a comedy team, yeah. But we didn't we didn't do jokes with one another because neither one of us knew how to do jokes. But we would literally do little scenes of uh-huh. things, uh-huh. and and uh, you know three four minute pieces. And we started playing the clubs in L.A. I didn't want to I didn't want to perform uh, at all. Craig didn't want to do comedy. He wanted to be a, you know, a, a legitimate actor. Really, right. you know? And so, but we were doing all that. And so uh, at some point, you know, we, st- we, 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 we worked a few television shows together and then eventually he wanted to focus on acting and I continued to write and did comedy. And as I said, with Rudy DeLuca, we did comedy. I did Carol Burnett show and some other things. Then we went to work for Mel Brooks and did all that. And um, uh, and so I just slowly began to move along until I finally ended up writing. Well, you, so you figured out how to write jokes, clearly. No, I didn't really write them. I can only I can only do it if it was really connected to character. Right. You know I mean, some people can just go bang. Mm-hmm. And just a right joke. Bits, I, right. Bits. I can only do it as character within a in a in a in a situation. Yeah, I guess you probably learned how to hone that with uh because Carol Burnett was like that. I mean, those shows were like that. Those variety yeah. shows, those sketches were, and some of those shows, like Carol Burnett specifically, had, you know, recurring characters. I mean, every week yes. in the sketches. Yeah, if, if something caught on, then they, we we'd play it out. We used to do a lot of um, uh, the, the sketches, and 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 they were great because they really worked it. They didn't read off of cue cards. They they learned the lines and they really performed it. You know, and, how funny uh, was Tim Conway, buddy? Conway was hysterical. Conway was, we wrote a lot of his, his old man sketches when he was an old man, he would go real slow, you know? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so we wrote a lot of those physical pieces for him and he would, and he would elaborate and you could see him sometimes. And if you went by the set, you'd see him wandering around and he would be testing the door to see how strong the door is because he, he was going to throw a little piece in here, a piece of physical comedy. He was a great physical comedian. Oh, yeah. Really, one of the greats. So when you wrote for, you wrote uh, with Mel Brooks, when, now I would assume that writing like High Anxiety, uh, which other one did you do with him? Uh, uh, silent, silent movie. movie. Silent movie and High Anxiety. But did you, was, that a, was that a writer's room? I mean, uh, it was, is that how that worked? Or? There were four of us. There'd be Mel, uh, Rudy DeLuca, uh, Ron Clark, and uh, and myself and we we would you know work it from there and you sat four of you and we would just continue to throw ideas around and certain things would stick and mel was like really great i mean he he was so first of all he's maybe the the funniest person i think i've ever met i mean (laughs) he'll get into a rant about something and he's just amazing and he was very open and and, and this is the key thing that happened in, in a sense in my life is that we were on the set when he was shooting and he would be by the monitor and he had us there 
and we would watch. And so you're now you're seeing him do it. And so sometimes you go over and you say, Mel, maybe you should do whatever it may be. And that was the beginning, I think, of me beginning to think of beyond just writing. Right. Uh, and then I began to sort of like, what happens if the camera's here instead of there? And what happens if you did that? And what happens right. if this is a little faster? And what happens if you do? And that was, the, I think, the beginning, that gestation of where things are beginning to bubble up in my head. And I would imagine, too, like the one thing that I learned about, you know, directing uh, just from watching it in the limited experience I have is that, you know, if you've got a good DP who, who, who you know, he's got a good head on his shoulders, you know, it gives you a lot of creative freedom, right? Like, you know, you, you can just whatever you conceptualize, you can say, you know, there's a whole crew of people that will manifest it for you. They can. Yeah. If they're all in sync. Right. Because what happens is sometimes you'll have a cameraman who wants to put the camera here. Yeah. And you know that in a sense it's it's less dramatic or yeah. it, it, you know, whatever the decisions are. So sometimes it, it, you, you have to really connect with a, a, a camera person so that you're really in sync about how to handle it and the rhythms of all of it. Because it's, you know, if you, especially if you're doing a comedy, as you would know, if you, if you tamper with the, the rhythm of something, yeah. it can be, it can be uh, not funny at all. And then all of a sudden you do it that, and all of a sudden, boom, it just, pops and so the you have to protect the rhythm when you have a couple of people doing something you have to be able to support that rhythm well i mean that must have been good training to do the two mel brooks movies or the three that you did he was great and and he in fact was the one i sometimes went lunch because we we'd go to lunch every day and uh i would talk about you know some of the guys i knew in baltimore and mel was the one who actually said to me well why don't you write about those guys and he, in fact, he even said, you know, Fellini's uh, film, Ivitalone. And he mentioned that as, a, as an example. And uh, uh, then eventually I ended up, you know, uh, doing Diner. But it, it, it was his encouragement because I had all these ideas, but I didn't, I hadn't thought of it in, in film terms. And so he was very uh, instrumental. And, and you got to work with Harvey Corman again, so... <laughs> <laughs> oh, but it was it was great i mean it was terrific and just let me I'll backtrack just to give you about how crazy things are in terms of life i said that george was the one that got me to go to the acting class and the acting class led to you know meeting uh, uh craig and then doing you know, working clubs and that led to this and one thing and the writing etc etc and so i um uh Someone said to me after I'd done a bunch of things and they said, well, and I said, you know, George was very responsible for me in, in my career because he was the one who said, hey, why don't we go up to Hollywood? And they said, so what happened to George? I said, I never saw him again from 1968. And they said, well, what happened to him? And I said, I don't know. I don't know what happened to him, but he was instrumental in that first step. Now I go to a, a movie. Yeah. In 2000, yeah. with my wife, go to see the movie Blow, right? Yeah. Johnny Depp uh, in the film. And um, it starts at 1968, Santa Monica, the beach, and I hear George, you know, George. Uh, and, uh, and then I hear the name George Young. I go, George Young, you know? And then if you watch the film, <laughs> he be, he, this character becomes the largest cocaine dealer in North America. And I turned to my wife, I said, that's George. 
That's George. He says, what are you talking about? The George I've always mentioned to you that I got started, George. So I ended up getting into this. George ends up becoming the largest cocaine dealer in North America, ultimately went to prison, et cetera. That's what the movie's all about, right? So now here's what's crazy. Yeah. I... He got out of prison and I called him Yeah, and uh, talked to him. And he said, I got to tell you one thing that's crazy. He said, you know, you always used to say to me, you know, when I was, you know, smoking, you know, dope and stuff and selling little baggies, et cetera. He said, you know, George, you got to stop with that shit. You're going to get in trouble one yeah, day. And he said, right. you kept always fucking carrying on about that. You know, that. and he said, so anyway, finally, I get arrested. I'm, I'm being taken into the police station. I'm in handcuffs. I'm going up the steps. I go into the police station. The Academy Awards is on. And I'm looking up and it says, and then best director for Ray Miff, Barry Levinson. And he said, and it flashed in my head, George, you got to stop with that dope and stuff. You're going to get in trouble. Uh, is he, so is he out still? He's out still, yes. That, isn't so, that like crazy in terms of like stories, how things go? Yeah, I mean, you know, hey, you never know. You have different career paths, Barry. That's all. You know, <laughs> it sounds like he did all right for himself for a while. <laughs> for a while, yeah. <laughs> it's a risky yeah. game. That's hilarious <laughs> that that's how you've reconnected with them. It is sort of interesting that, you know, mentioning the, the difference in, in pace and t- before everything was so technologized, you know, like that with 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 phones and with everything else, that there was long swaths of time where you, you just were out of contact with people. No, no, because you don't have a cell phone. You yeah. just can't just pull it up. So unless somebody would have like a, you know, a post office box that they would have and they would go right. there periodically because everybody was moving around. So your address was meaningless. Right. And your phone, your, every time you move, the phone would, you know, you're canceling it. Yeah. And so it was very hard to stay connected. Sure, sure. Except you, by wandering around and running into one another. Yeah, and meeting with people. So so Mel inspired you to, to kind of flesh out that story. But clearly you had an, uh, you like to write or it's like for me, when I was reading over some of the stuff about you, I mean, the, the fact that in the middle of everything else, at some point you wrote a novel too. I'm like, Jesus Christ, this guy really must love it because I can't stand it. <laughs> and it like, it's to me, it's such a fucking chore. Even my own show, I didn't like writing. So... <laughs> Maybe That's it's just great. the nature of a comedian. I don't know. And I've written books, but it's like, it's never fun. It's never fun. But, uh, but- I don't, to be honest with you, uh, because I was such a bad student in school. Yeah. I mean, so I, I would literally fail almost, you know, all the time because I couldn't pay attention in the class. I always thought everything was going in slow motion. So I, I would fail. So I never thought of myself as being able to really do anything on an academic level at all yeah. and, and writing never occurred to me either it, it it because whenever i had to write a paper i used to get you know failing grades all the time so i never knew that i could write and i thought well isn't this any good you know like i as an example and this is like i think about the educational system that i sometimes really worry about um i had to write a book report and i did uh you know, uh, catcher in the rye. Okay. Yeah. So I wrote the book report, uh, as if I were, was, uh, Holden, Holden Caulfield. Yeah. 
And I said, I really don't like to write book reports. So I guess, but if I have to write a book report, I will. But, you know, it's not something that I really am interested in. Yeah. Blah, blah, blah. And I, that's how I did the book report. And, of course, I got a failing grit uh, from it. <laughs> <laughs> so I, because I couldn't conform to the book report way of doing things. Yeah. And, and that's the only way I knew how to work is like whatever occurs to me right. to, to tell the story whether it's a book report or whatever. And it wasn't until much later that I began to say, oh, wait a minute, uh, you can tell a story in another way. And, and as a short example, and I want to go on about this, when, um, when, I, when I did Diner and uh, the studio saw it and it said, uh, you know, you have a lot to learn about editing. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, you know, it says like, you know, he's going to eat the sandwich. You're not going to eat the sandwich. You know, they're, they're just talking about a sandwich. <laughs> the, the best scene in the movie. He says, cut and just get to the story. <laughs> and I said, that is the story. <laughs> and what I meant in a sense is I am telling a story, but I don't want to I don't want the story to just be the main upfront on it. We will follow the story through this kind of seemingly meaningless conversations but that's what we do we don't express ourselves in such an articulate fashion it's always sideways if you're if you happen to be in love with somebody and you don't know how to talk to them about it you don't just come right out and say it it's you're 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 you're, you're going left and right and whatever you're never direct about it and that's human behavior but you can tell the story through that and that's what i thought diner was so there is a story multiple stories but i try to hide it with these conversations but it tells you how close they are to one another right well. well that well that's the interesting thing thing about that i guess that the network executive was thinking in terms of one through line which in in that movie it's sort of an umbrella you know the 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 sort of in the the pending marriage just becomes this umbrella for several different stories about characters yeah and, but they're and all, they all have their multiple stories to it, but it's hidden in that way. Right. You know? Yeah. And I mean, it's sort of like American graffiti in that way. And it, it kind of right. Like yes. there was, yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I never thought about it until you were just talking about it that, you know, what is the story of that other than yeah. an evening before some kid goes to college? Yes. No. And that, and that's important, yeah. you know, as opposed to some, that's important. That's why, you know, people connect you, you, you make that, you make that connection. You know, you know, what's so fascinating about, uh, about uh, influences that you don't understand. You don't always understand what influences you in your life. And yeah. it wasn't until much later in life that I realized uh, that Patty Chayefsky and Marty was probably the most influential moment when I was a kid and I was watching Marty on television. Wait, what do you want to do, Marty? <laughs> what do you want to do, Marty? I don't know, Angie. What do you want to do? Right? I thought that was literally the greatest thing I'd ever heard in my life. And I was a little kid and I'd always walk around, you know, in the house with my mother and father said, what do you want to do tonight, Marty? I don't know. What do you want to do, Angie? You know, what are you talking about? You know, I, and I would do it all all the time because I found it so fascinating to me, right? Now, I didn't make any sense out of it at the time. But it was but human. It was human, and that's what Diner ultimately was. It was that, and that was what I extracted from 
Chayefsky's work. It, it felt like real life to you. Yeah. Like this is how that, people talk. That's, that's, that's life. And right. that, so there are these little influences that we don't always, we're never smart enough to go, oh, you know what? I'm really influenced by, you know, some things just get in your head and years later you may make sense out of it. And, and I think that's what makes it exciting in terms of what, what I'm saying, what we're able to do in, in writing and directing. And it's, it, well, it's interesting because it seems like Chayefsky, like it, it, it seems like there is a, that you did, you were kind of similar in a way with some of the movies, weren't you? I mean, a little bit. And if I were to think about it, I mean, network. I mean, if you really think about network and some of the movies, the satires you did around television, do you know? Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, Wag the Dog, Jimmy Hollywood, you know, Man of the Year. I mean, thematically, it's similar. It's it's in the ballpark. Right? I mean, he was truly I mean, I would think of him as a truly, truly brilliant writer. And, and I would only be in the margins of that. But I do believe, yes, the, it, it, it's like, look, if you're taking about the breakup of an, an American family, in a sense, in Avalon, was like you cut the turkey without me, you know, we leave, right? right? That And that, it wasn't just the turkey, it was the whole shift that was taking place. It was the change of, of the, the breakup of the family structure, all these things, and it, it comes out that way rather than this articulate version of, you know, two brothers. It's, you know... It, that that in a sense was the breaking point and as crazy as it is it it has its value rather than being so articulate and expressing ourselves right yeah right right as opposed to sort of you know, the 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 story points are are sublimated in the characters whereas you're right. not just sort of like here's your act break this is the yeah. point of this yeah. you know they, yeah, it kind of sneaks up on you yeah. Like it, it's it's almost like even in Rain Man, where you know that movie's really about uh, a type of personality that kind of uh, was was prominent in the eighties. That, that type of ambition and selfishness, and the 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 drive of the Tom Cruise's character that it, it disabled his ability to be empathetic uh, to to the struggles of his brother, who he didn't know, and that you know he really is able to come back around. Uh, and, and find his heart and his purpose, you know, through this brother and, and find out what's important in life, you know, relative to sort of, you know, the, it really becomes almost about like, you know, aspiring to be a Gordon Gecko type of character or, or, or really engaging in, 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 you know, empathy and family and caring and, and, and understanding humanity. Yeah. Yeah. That's all in there. And then you just have to put that all aside and you just, you're just involved with the story. It. You know, and and that, but that's that's that one hundred percent. That's the case. Yeah, and I mean, I just like I I don't know how conscious you are of that in terms of you know creating these things that do you know represent a time or or like you know even diner was a generational thing. Exactly. I mean, that's why there's a line that Kevin Bacon has very early on in terms of things that are beyond what they have been around. Is uh, uh, Kevin Bacon sees the girl on the horse. And uh, said, uh, "You ever think there's something going on that we don't know about? You know what I mean? It's yeah. like <laughs> right. a girl and a horse and a whatever, and it's you know, yeah. beautiful yeah. or whatever. There's there's something else out there. Yeah, and, and his character is you know slightly more nihilistic than the other ones for whatever yeah. reason. Yeah, yeah. And I remember. I just remember all that because I remember seeing that and you know you know becoming fascinated with 
with Riser because it was at that time after I you introduced me to Riser, and I I went to the comic strip in New York and I wanted to do comedy and I remember because I knew Riser from Diner and I saw him at the comic strip that night, I I approached him to ask him how to start doing comedy. And really? Because, yeah, uh, you know he was just sitting there at the strip and I think I was like I must have been in college. I don't remember when it was, but I just I, I asked him if I could sit with him for a minute and and, and talk to him. He said, "All right." And I, and I said, "Well, what? How do you get? How do you do comedy? How do you start doing comedy as a living?" And he literally just said, "I don't know. You just got to do it." And I'm like, "All right." That was it. <laughs> <laughs> that was that was the big moment. That but, was uh, it. <laughs> that's all I got out of Paul, you know, at that moment. But but it seems to me that over the course of your career, that you know there are these human stories and I guess they're all human to a degree, but you certainly, you know, you didn't, uh, you know, tether yourself to any one form. It was, you've done every kind no. of fucking movie. I mean, the, I watched the natural a lot. I would say out of all your movies, I watch that one the most. I don't know why, but, but I, I tend to, I, I'll, I'll watch it on purpose more than, uh, than other ones because, yeah. uh, it's just the look of it and the feel of it and the, the heroic tale. And there's just something like the, the reason I will go back to it is just the the complete insanity of that Barbara Hershey character. Like if you if you do anything that's recognized, you know, if you're fame, if you in any way, there there that woman's around. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just it's just a terrifying thing, man. It's. <laughs> and I don't know what it is. You know what? You know what's amazing. Uh, in in some ways, it's like you know luck uh, as well. Uh, the idea that um, uh, you know Redford uh, ultimately uh, had you know uh, because we had met and we were talking about baseball, and he said, you know, I got this script around here uh, somewhere, and he he pulls it out, and it was a natural. He says, take a look at this. See what you think. And I, I read it. And I called him. I said, gee, I think this is great. I didn't really know him well. I just met him. And, uh, and he said, yeah, okay, good. And we ended up, you know, doing that film. Now, when I think back on it, here's, a, here's a, uh, this actor, this giant actor who also won an Academy Award as Best Director. And he ends up saying, yeah, yeah, you should direct this film. Yeah. You know, what I mean, it's it's such a leap of faith uh, on his behalf. Well, I guess and, so. Uh, yeah, you're pretty early on. You've only done a couple of movies that you directed. One movie. One. Oh, one. That was it. That was it. Diner, <laughs> yeah, and then right. there's the natural. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but with, but the choices in that because like you know if I read it like um it's one of those things where you know like when I was in college studying film I never really understood semiotics or 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 the language of you know that that that's that's a mythological story that like as a film to study you know it's it's almost a a homeric story right yeah sure and i guess it's that way in the book but it's interesting to me to know that the book ends with him striking out and that, yeah. and like you know like that and and you second movie in you're given the script and and the you know Bernard Malmet the the hero strikes out there's no fucking way you could do that Not right no. <laughs> no yeah like i mean did did that ever come up it uh you know one day when we were uh we were uh 
cutting the film. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he swings and misses, you know, yeah. and that. And, uh, and I, I said to the editor, why don't we like send this to the, the studio? Just you're like, Trey, you're out. But we just put that in there and it goes to black and just send it to the studio. Can you imagine everybody have a heart attack? You know what I mean? <laughs> and you couldn't do it. But, you know, there were all these changes along the way. The, the one thing that, uh, and I wish I would have known this at the time, and I only heard about it later on, is that Malamud, uh, who wrote this very American, you know, uh, piece, uh, and, but it didn't sell well in its time. It wasn't a giant bestseller. And he went to, supposedly, as I remember, it is a long time ago now, uh, with his uh, daughter, and they went to see The Natural. And he came out and she says, Dad, what do you think? And he said, finally, I'm an American writer. <laughs> really? And, and, and I thought, my God, I wish I would, have, I would have known that, you know, at the time. I mean, so, you know, he was able to enjoy it, even though we have to make these kinds of changes within it. Yeah. But initially, the critics never could get over that. Well, that he didn't just strike out, you know, because it was like, well, no, he, in the book, he strikes out. You know, so they and, also they 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 yeah, rode they, you for they that. Were, they were not happy about that. That the film was attacked because he he hit a home run and it didn't strike out to end well, the movie. Apparently, they just can't uh, quite understand the Jews' legacy in Hollywood. We are here <laughs> to create America and make it happy. Yes. <laughs> you guys, you guys wouldn't you wouldn't accept us on any level until we made these dreams for you. See, the guy wins in the end. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and it made Bernard feel American finally. He realized like maybe I don't end, finally, maybe I, yeah. I don't have to be depressed. You know, maybe 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 there's hope. Yeah. That's that's too much, man. <laughs> so yeah. you stayed pretty close with Robin the whole time, right? Yes, yes. Yeah. It was it, it was such a shock. You know, in term it was such a shock and and it's one of those things when you suddenly, you know, uh, you got to f- get a phone call and say, you know, you know, Robin, you know, committed suicide. I mean, it was like devastating. It was, it, it, it's hard to, to even talk about it because it's somehow you couldn't even envision anything like that. You know? Yeah. He, he was such a great character, you know, and, and, uh, and in some ways, you know, he, he had such a great empathy for people as well. You know, I mean, I mean, he was he was really uh, uh, in, had that a childlike fascination, you know, for for a number of things and people and everything else. And so when I when I got that phone call, I was like, well, you don't know. You, Why? you can't even describe. Yeah. It. Yeah. I mean, because I think like it seems that Good Morning Vietnam really was the, the beginning in a way of, of you know, him in, in, in terms of feature films that that was the the thing that it was perfect for him yeah and you kind of and you knew that it, you, you you knew it and we worked on it uh to get that uh because i thought that was the key thing to it you know even though the radio stuff is only 12 minutes of the movie you know it's something like that it's very, well, it was, very, it, was very a, it was an exciting balance because you know he had done i think a few movies before that where he tried to just be a serious actor but to incorporate 
that side of him effectively in a way that you you know wasn't just eating scenery but had a purpose and then to sort of counterbalance it with his empathy was you know that was the trick right yeah and you and you had to balance the the empathy of it because it's very easy in a sense where it's too much because he does feel that much so sometimes on screen you have to say look we got to back up a little bit you know otherwise it's too much because oh, I mean, he he had such a heart to him that literally oh, you don't want it to you don't want to get sappy you don't want it to get sappy and you had to like restrain that a little bit to pull that in to get to get that you know so you get real hands on sometimes with the actors in terms of like, well yeah when you do I mean I I like to I, you know I was sort of a, you can say it's like a col- uh, a controlled freedom hmm. is that I want an actor to feel very free within it to try any particular thing but at the same time. You know, there, 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 there's a limitation to it, but you don't want to, you don't want to push the limitation because that would restrict what we might do, you mm, know, because, mm. you know, there's these moments, you know, it goes this way or that way. And, and, and it was very, if, there was a lot of fun to take certain scenes and then just see what would happen if we did this. Right. And, and for instance, there's a scene in the film and I said to him one day, I said, you know, I have to find a scene for you where you see uh, your how how much you mean to the troops because otherwise it's an abstract. You're in a, you're in a radio booth and you're doing this comedy, but you don't hear laughs, and so therefore you don't know you know cause and effect really. You right. know that they like you, but you don't hear it. You don't hear it. You're right. never there. And so he said, "Well, what are we able to do?" I said, "Why don't?" And so I said, uh, why don't we just have like there's a traffic jam and all the trucks are backed up and then you're stuck and they and somehow they know it's you. And then you start and then you end up doing it to the you know, you start playing around with the soldiers and we and now you got the cause and effect and you see how important you are to these soldiers. Oh, yeah. And, and I'm, so I'm that, sure Robin really fought that idea, I bet, huh? <laughs> Here, get, you so, get to perform for people. Yeah. <laughs> Ooh, so no, how, I can't do it. I can't do it. And that's how that sort of came about. Uh-huh. And, uh, yeah. and it, was tough. it was tough for him in this regard because a bunch of these, you know, because we're over there in Thailand and I end up throwing this thing and now we got to get like soldiers, right? Right. And so we end up with just getting, you know, a bunch of people and then, some of them were like, you know, uh, from other countries, they don't even understand English. Right. You know, they're in there, they don't know what the hell he's saying. <laughs> and he had to find a way, you know, to work with that. Oh, that know? must have been great for him. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know, because, you know, he's got to adapt to it. You know, yeah, and, and yeah. he was so smart. He'd find ways to, you know, just by sounds and things. Yeah, physicalizing. That he do, yeah. And they'll pull it, pull people in. He was a sweet guy. I mean, I, I guess it, it's terribly sad. And, and uh, you know, when you think about it, he's definitely missed. And I, I just think like what you're talking about is empathy and stuff. He was a very, really, when you talk to him or when you know him for a little bit, he's a very quiet, shy guy. <laughs> you know, like it's just yes. he's definitely absorbing things and, you know, engaged. But, you know, by nature, not, uh, you know, he had to turn that shit on, you know. Yep. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so the other thing I was realizing about, I mean, obviously with Avalon, you 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 kind of um, depicted where you come from, 
But I was thinking about Bugsy, like, because I was thinking about that movie, and it, I just had this realization this morning that, like, with because I remember knowing enough about the mob to know that Warren Beatty was much older than Bugsy ever made it to, right? Yeah, uh, but by, I don't know, 10, 10 12 years. Yeah, but then like I started that. to realize, like, with these stories, what fucking difference does it make? Right. right. <laughs> Yeah, right. Gee, it wasn't Bugsy. He wasn't uh, the 30. He was only 39 right. at the time. Yeah. But but like, but, you know, there's this the, the idea of historical accuracy is relative in some cases. But in the cases of these mythic stories about, you know, criminals or cowboys or whatever, it doesn't matter. You, you know what I mean? It, it It's really about the story, right? Yes, it's the character yeah. uh, that that's being portrayed as opposed to the authenticity of like age yeah. or other certain things. So because, you know, look, uh, you, sometimes you can take sometimes you can stray too far and therefore it ult- ultimately undermines the character because yeah. you've so altered it that it doesn't quite work or make sense. But in terms of age, uh, at times it doesn't matter unless the age is really an issue in the film. You know, I mean, if the sure. guy right, was, right, was right. 25 and died, then he did that. And you got a guy who's 50. It doesn't, you know, doesn't work. Um, so I think whenever you're doing a film, you always have to sort of say, uh, how important is this to the story we're telling? Yeah. And how much will it how, how much will it affect how we uh, process it? Yeah. And what, I, I didn't realize until like maybe today that you know you kind of invented uh or or was you know at the beginning of this prestige tv idea the idea you know that you you seem to be one of the first to figure out that you could do tv uh with the same quality of movies even on an episodic level right with uh with homicide and uh yeah and uh, oz for sure i did look i look because i came out of television and television has a uh, an important place as opposed to just features. Because when I originally got the book, uh, Simon's book on homicide, it was about developing it as a film. And I thought, no, it's better as a television series Mm. because you can just let these stories play out. And then fortunately at that time, uh, I was able to, uh, I said, look, I'd like to shoot it. Because back then it was like, well, you'll do some exteriors and you do all the interiors and outlines. And, and I thought, well, that's not going to be realistic uh, to me. And I said, I'd like to shoot it in Baltimore. Yeah. And they said, well, the cost and whatever. And I said, well, what we'll do is we'll just basically shoot on 16 millimeter, uh, which Super 16, which no network show was ever on Super 16. And, and no show was handheld on Super 16. What would they you do? Know? What would they take out there? 35 millimeter on the street? Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. And uh, so I, th- I thought, you know, by having a little handheld Super 16, yeah. you know, we could have a raggedness and let the raggedness be part of the show because right. there's an edginess about it. And I thought, uh, and, and, and again, it goes back to my youth. I loved Naked City when I was a kid. Right. I loved that television show. And that was shot on the streets of New York. And so I thought, gee, I wonder if I could just do that for Baltimore and, and we can be even more ragged than... Uh, 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 Naked City sure. was in its time, and so that's how it evolved. And and was Simon happy with it initially? Is he, has he always been okay? Well, he was. Ha- I mean, that's how he, he. That's when he started to write because we brought him in. He became one of the writers on the show. Yeah, and that's where he started to 
make that real transition from a, a journalist to a um, uh, you know a, a writer. And you say, and you 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 got Richard Belzer a new life. Yes, I I heard uh, I, we were about to cast some other actor, and I thought you know this guy's not bad, but. Uh, I, I don't know how surprising, you know, I said, maybe I need to get some guy that some, uh, and I couldn't quite explain it, you know, so we need some guy that does something different or yeah. whatever. And I was riding in my car and I was listening to Howard Stern and Belzer was on Howard Stern. Yeah. And I was listening to him in the rhythms that he had. And I thought, gee, I wonder if he can, he could be an actor. And, and, and so he came in, he read, he wasn't particularly good. And, uh, I, and I said, well, well, why don't we come back one more time and just sort of you kind of know it, you know, so you like, you know, you're just talking like you would do if you're doing your stand up, you know, just so it's more naturalistic. And he he got better. He wasn't great at that time. But I thought, you know, with a little bit more time, I think he can he can land this character. And uh, that's how it happened. And I didn't realize also before I forget that uh, that you wrote and uh, justice for all. Yeah. With, uh, was she your wife at the time? Uh, yes, Valerie Curtin. Yeah. So you wrote, uh, you're out of order. I, this whole, <laughs> I'm out of order. You're out. That's one of those Marty lines, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yes, it is. Yeah. It's very much so. <laughs> that came about because of, you know, the diner guys that grew up and some, and one in particular became a lawyer. Uh-huh. And so when I would go back and visit and we would talk and he was telling me, he said, you know, something, the legal system is so screwed up. He said, you always get this Perry Mason kind of law shows or whatever. He says, it's chaos. Yeah. It's chaos. It's, <laughs> it's, it's madness. And so we started talking and he was telling me stories uh-huh. and I started gathering the stories. And uh, and then I, I was telling, you know, Valerie. And then ultimately we we, you know, we did, we turned it into a screenplay. Oh, the chaos. That is exactly it with Jeffrey Tambor throwing those plates in the hallway. Yeah, no, it's the friend of mine was saying, you don't understand. He was telling me about the fact that, you know, some uh, judges, you know, carried guns in the courtroom. Oh, Jack Warden. He was so good. Jack Warden with a gun and stuff. And he was telling me, he said, this it's another you don't understand how crazy it is. You know, people coming in to the for a case or whatever, and they don't they got the wrong client. I mean, he said, you know, oh he was telling God. many, many stories. And that's how it happened. And that was that movie did well. And that was what yeah. how, how did that get set up with Jewison and everything? We wrote it yeah. and we gave it to a producer named Joe Azan. Yeah. And Joe Azan um, gave it to uh, Norma Jewison, who who really responded to it. And um then he he was he he wanted Pacino. Then basically Al wanted a big reading, you know, of it, have some reading to make sure that the, that's what he wanted to do. Which I have to tell you was one of the worst experiences that I can remember because Jewison's got all these actors in in this conference room in the evening. Start to go good, and then uh, Al gets a little quieter. You know, because he's thinking, you know, because I mean, now I know him well, but so he's, he's getting a little quieter, you know. So then the other actors not wanting to show him up, or they get a little quiet. Yeah. And then Al is like thinking as he's, you know, he's going over this now. He's taking long a time to say things. Now they're getting a little slower. Yeah. So it's getting quieter and then it's getting <laughs> slower and slower. 
and slower <laughs> to the point that I didn't even know what the story was anymore. I couldn't even, I, I looked at Valerie and said, what in the world this is a disaster, a total yeah. disaster. Yeah. Go back to the hotel. It's about one o'clock in the morning. And uh, Joe Azan calls and says, Al loves it. <laughs> and that's how it happened. <laughs> and he was a big star at that time, right? That was oh, his, that was his yeah. time. He's one of the great, great actors. I've had such a good time. I'll tell you, man, the, the, um, the Kevorkian movie, the, you know, you don't know Jack, yeah, that you, know Jack. You, you did that for HBO, right? Yeah. I, I really think that's really one of the best performances out of him ever. He's amazing. He's an, he's amazing. He, and he's so, he's so great in a sense to work with and, you know, throw ideas around, et cetera. And he, and he just ab absorbs certain things, you know, and then he's able to use it, you know, cause I said to him before we started shooting, I met with Kevorkian. And um, so we sit down in the office and uh, at some point someone came in and says, Jack, would you like some uh, coffee? And he said, yeah, coffee would be good. And he said, uh, they said uh, decaf. And he said, uh, Decaf is for cowards. And, <laughs> and, and I laughed and he smiled and he went out. And then I realized he's got this real sense of humor about him. So I said to Al, I said, we have to find little places where we can have a little bit of humor to this character. It'll make it a richer character because he actually is, you know, fun at times. Yeah. Here's Dr. Death, but he's actually has a, a sense of humor. And so, uh, he said, okay. I, I said, well, I'll find places for it where we can, you know, we can just sort of mine that periodically and which we were able to add to it. And he just, he'll, he'll go, he'll try things. I mean, he's very open and just, uh, I can't say enough about him. Well, the, well, for me, the interesting thing was there was a period there where, you know, he, he did a couple of roles that were, were so defining and, but they were so over the top, you know, scent of a woman, Scarface, the thing is, how do these method guys, how do these huge stars from the 70s, specifically him and De Niro, you know, you know, how do they age? How do they keep working? You know, and De Niro sort of found this new life in comedy, you know, where he's can parody himself pretty well. But he can also do the other thing. But he, you know, but it's very difficult for some actors not to become this sort of collection of habits and ticks that they can mm -hmm. just fill up again, you know. So for me... Like when I watched the Kevorkian, I was like, he, he, he's so capable. They both are actually, because even De Niro in that movie, The Intern, the one he did with Anne Hathaway, it's it's mm -hmm. actually a great performance. But they they the the way that that Pacino can tap into vulnerability, because I mean that's really what made him amazing in in the seventies was that even as Michael Corleone, the evolution of that character from this the vulnerability that he's capable of. Yeah, like and it seemed to have come back to me. It, 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 I could see it in the Kevorkian thing, and I could see him using his chops in a way that, like, he's not a caricature of himself. You know? No, not no, uh, not at all. I mean, I, look, I think it depends on the on the role that you take on. Right. You know? Well, you uh, work with De Niro too on the Madoff thing, right? Yes. Yeah, and th that's a very quiet, very quiet character. Yeah, for sure. Uh, that. Uh, that De Niro did. And I, I thought he was spectacular in that. Do they work similarly? Uh, no, they're, to, they're, they're different. Huh. You know, they're, they're very different in their approach. Um, How so? To it. Um, 
I, you know, because when they're doing, well, I should say this, when they're actually doing a scene, I think that they're, they're the same and that they have this instinct. They're great at listening. You know, they're great listeners. Yeah. And, and that's one of the key things in terms of a, a talented actor is that they'll hear something and they're responding in a way that you, we gravitate to like want to watch their face because they, they, there's something about it that compels us to, to stare at that, uh, at that screen. They both have that ability to, to, to listen and are very open you know, to things that will happen, you know, that they'll, they could be spontaneous with. It won't be like some line is being said and say, wait a minute. Now, he didn't say that line. When, right. You know, they don't, they're, they're in the scene and they're going and things will happen. And you'll, you'll if you're if you got the camera in the right place for it, you can pick up another special moment here and there. And uh, so they're very spontaneous that yeah. way. Uh, yeah, Jeff Daniels once told me, like, he, he was very emphatic about it, about movie actors. It's like, you got to learn how to work your face. It's all, you know, you got, it's all, it's all about the face, you know? And I never really thought about that when I'm paraphrasing, but he was very emphatic about it, that all the acting in movies is the, most of it is the face. It's the face and it's the eyes, you know? Uh, I know that sounds like crazy in a way, but I mean, I think there's a scene with, um, Bob, when he's in prison in Madoff, and he's he's looking at this uh, piece of footage, you know, on the computer, and you just see him staring at the screen, you know, at that uh, you know computer screen, and staring at it, and it's he's mesmerized. Mm, yeah. He's totally in it, you know. Yeah, yeah. And then and then on cut, it's not like he's staying in a character. And then it's like cut, okay, and then he walks away. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I saw. I've, I've seen him work. I worked with him briefly in that. Uh, I, I was in a scene in the Joker, so I, I got to spend a, like a week or like three or four days on set with him oh, watching yeah. it. But the weird thing is, you watch him because like he didn't have to do a lot for that role. You know, he was just like a, a talk show host. But but it's sort of interesting to see. You know what I saw that day, and I'm thinking like, how the fuck are they going to put this together? And then you watch it and you're like, oh, my God, like, you know, what they know about themselves and their process and how they do the work after so long. I couldn't see how it was all going to work when I was there, but it was perfect. You know, it's kind of astounding. It is. I mean, it's a gift. You know, in the end of the day, there are these people that have this kind of gift and they know how to they, they know how to develop it. Yeah. And Paterno and, and, was great, too. That's a difficult character. With these. Like these three movies, or the Madoff, the Kevorkian, and Paterno, were they were they brought to you, or did you were those your ideas? They all came to me initially, and mm. then ultimately I worked with the uh, you know the writers on you know developing it. So so Kevorkian uh, came to me, and then just sort of developed it along, and that that applies to you know all three of them because they're um, and. Uh, there's that process because as you go along, you know, things are going to change and evolve and then you have to figure out how, to, uh, how best to, to, to create a moment or define a moment mm -hmm. a little bit more, mm -hmm. uh, which is, you know, it's all part of the building process of doing a film. It's not like you can show up one afternoon and here's the script and you go shoot it. You know what I mean? Because you got all these, all these departments have to ultimately fit in like a glove because what is the cinematography going to be like? How do you, what, what kind of, what color palette are you working with? Yeah. What kind of, what kind of architecture is going to be around it as well? Because all those things influence 
uh, a given scene. It's like I said to someone one time um, that if you wrote a scene and it's supposed to be outside, you know, on, on a tree lined street and you're going to shoot it in a kitchen, uh, you just can't move it to the kitchen and it's going to work. Sometimes you have to you'll play around with it because uh, or you'll say, wouldn't it be better if we did it this way as opposed to that way? You know, so there's all these variables that hopefully you get it right as you go along with the process. There's nothing there's nothing mechanical about filmmaking. It is it 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 requires a combination of elements that have to come together, and you got to get this unit functioning in a certain way to support uh, right. the piece. Now you've made a ton of movies. Some have done better better than others. Do you do you look at do you, are there movies that you've done where you're like, well, that one didn't quite come together? Um, you know, here here's the thing. I seldom watch films that I've done once I finished it. Yeah. Uh, so sometimes if I'm sitting in and I'm switching channels and I start to watch for a minute and say, oh, oh, oh I did that movie. And then immediately I switched to another channel. Why? Because Why? I don't know. I don't know how to watch it once it's done. Because uh-huh. you know, what am I doing? I'm just watching what for just the entertainment value of it. You know, it's it's like. I did that. So just the oh, right. idea and also of going your memories back. tied up with that process are what they are. Yes, so you're not going to be a million able to, things. Right. You're yeah. not going to be able to remove yourself from that. Like, I can't imagine you're watching one of your movies and there's a moment you're like, no, this fucking, ugh, that was a pain <laughs> in the ass. That's yeah, right. Yeah. That yeah. Like I have, I went to a festival it was a few years ago and um, they wanted to show uh, uh, rain man at the festival. It was a big, big audience. And so I thought, you know, you, you go there and you, et cetera, and they introduce you, et cetera, and then they're going to show the movie. And I said, well, then I'll sneak out. And the, and the, the festival director said, no, you can't leave. You can't leave. I said, no, I, I don't, I don't want to stay and watch. And he said, well, you can. And they would be offended. This was somewhere in Europe. You yeah. know? You'll be offended if you don't stay for the film or whatever. So I sat and watched it, you know, on the big screen, and it, which was the first time I saw the movie <laughs> since – 1988. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I, <laughs> I had to sit there and watch it, which I, I enjoyed it, but the, it's very hard to, to watch, you know, just to see what you've done in the past. But don't so. you, like, I used to have a hard time watching myself do stand up, which it was obviously different. But as time has gone on, I realized, like, when I watched the things, I'm like, well, that was a pretty good, I, you know, I was me. That's a good representation of what I do. Yeah, I've evolved that, obviously, but, you know, I, I don't have to hate it. Right. But you don't hate yeah. your movies, right? You just. No, 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 I don't. I, I just, uh, I figure I can, I've, there's, I can use that time better by switching to another channel. That's easy. That's the other guy I, that I couldn't think of. It's De Niro, Pacino, and Hoffman. Those yeah. were the guys. Those were the, that generation of method movie stars. And they're all totally different. They are. How they, pro, how they go about things. Yeah, and I mean, uh, Dustin is, uh, is, is a character into himself, you know, in uh-huh. another place. And, and, uh, the, uh, and you have to figure out. And, and part of the fun of, 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 uh, of the process is figuring certain things out. Like very early on, um, just remembering this is so long ago, but... We're doing this scene. Uh, oh, you worked and, with both uh, of them in Wag the Dog. I just re- realized that. Yes, yeah. both were in Wag the Dog. Yeah. And uh, but it, I just tell you one quick scene yeah. with with 
it becomes a character moment is on um, Rain Man. He's sitting with Tom Cruise and in the, this little coffee shop. And I said to uh, Dustin, I said, uh, you know, the character, this is very early on, like day one, day two, somewhere in there. Yeah. Uh, I said, the character seems too depressed to me. You know, and I said, you know, you've seen, you know, from all the research about autistics, they're busy. They're busy. Like, you know, they'd be looking up at the ceiling. They're, how many tiles? How many of this? You know, they're, they're looking. They're, they're, they're active. They're not just sitting depressed. He said, okay, all right. So now we got to do the take again. <laughs> and now he's looking up. He's involved. Oh, it's going great. Now, now Tom's talking to him. Uh, Ray, do you want a so-and-so? And he doesn't respond. Ray, do you want a so-and-so? All right, cut. I said, Dustin, he's, he's talking to you. You're supposed to say, you know, uh, you, you have to respond to him. He said, yeah, but I got so involved with the tiles and the ceiling that I, didn't, I wasn't paying attention to him. I, I said, well, <laughs> I said, if you're going to do that, we're going to have a very serious problem with this movie. You, you have to be able to acknowledge him at some point in time, you know, not right away, but you have to acknowledge him, you know, to, yeah. I, but I got involved. And so if you watch the movie, I said, Think of it this way. You're, you're, you're busy with the tiles and the ceiling and you're counting them, et cetera, but you can hear him. You know, you can hear him. So you can just maybe just going, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, but you're busy, but yeah, yeah. And so when do we do that? Now, we did it and it was great and that worked. And then that's, if you ever watch the film, it's all through the film. Yeah, that's you know? the device. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that became a whole thing because he got so involved in whatever he was looking at, that he was no longer in the scene. And so you have to find a way to So that was, those years are him coming back to reality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're holding him off. You don't want to pay attention until you really realize what it is he wants. Then it's like, no. And, that, no. and, that, and he was able to integrate into the, that into the character because it made sense to him. Yeah, yeah. And, and that, so that was that, like the hook of the movie. That was that was the impression that people did. And that yes, exactly. And that became thing. Now it's accidental, and it's because of that. But I'm saying that's what that's what happens with film, with characters yeah. that you're working with, is that you have to find a way. To, you can't just say no. You can't do it. You have to say this, and then it's more mechanical. But this became something that we didn't. I didn't know that it was, but. As it went along, you went, oh, yeah, yeah, It'll, it can work here. It'll work here. It's like the key, it's like the key to the guy. The element. That was a key. The, yes. Yep. <laughs> that and was, you stumble on it. And you stumble on it. It's not in the script. It just becomes that's that. That's amazing. And that's part of the discovery and the fun of it when you're open enough to see where it's going to take you. Yeah. You know, you're never sure, but you got you to explore it. Otherwise, you're going to go, that, that, then it's just by the numbers. And, and in the end of the day, with a film, we respond to certain things about character. And that becomes so important. It's the character that carries the day. Yeah. And so that's, that's what happened. But it's interesting that all those movies, you know, all these moments, and at least in the few movies of yours that we, you know, talked about in depth, where, you know, at least in Diner and in Rain Man, and uh, that these moments that become signature moments are exactly that those Marty moments, you know, really. Yeah. Even in, in Justice for All, the, the sort of, yeah, yeah, what are you going to do, Marty? What do you want to do, Marty? And like, you know, you can eat that? I'm not comfortable with the word nuance. Whatever it is, 
You know, these are like they're they would be passing moments. You know, yes, if they weren't exactly, yeah, yeah, and but, then they become crucial, and that becomes what an audience awful media connects to. Yeah, you know, yeah, and and, and, and even with Robin, yeah, you know, the Good Morning Vietnam thing. Did that guy actually say it like that, or was that a Robin thing? Good morning. I'm not sure. Vietnam. I can't remember anymore. Yeah, I don't yeah. know if he quite did it the same way, but I think he did, you know, something in that ballpark. Yeah. I was just thinking about Chayefsky again. When was the last time you watched the movie Hospital? It's funny you said because it's one of my favorite movies. It's that, amazing. that scene in the that scene in the beginning about um, uh, about you know that he's dead. You know, yeah. someone says dead in the bed. Doctor Schaefer. And they, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> that. That. So what do you mean he's dead? Yeah. He's a, he's a so-and-so, you know, and that, that, that little run in the beginning of, uh, of that film is yeah. extraordinary. Yeah. I, uh, I just watched it again. It is, it is one of the darkest satires that was made at that time because yeah. it, it, it is a satire, you know, but it starts with that thing, you know, so, so-and-so in room one Oh three and whatever, <laughs> and he's dead and that whole thing. What do you mean? He's but that, that, whatever that, that run is, and yeah. I can't even paraphrase it right now. Dr. Schaefer. Our Dr. Schaefer. (laughs) (laughs) And then George C. Scott comes in and finally saying something like, where do you train your your nurses? The Doc Cow? Yeah. (laughs) Doc Cow! (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Priceless. Yeah. That movie, that movie I can watch over and over. When Chayefsky had moments in certain movies, it just, it it just, the the dialogue just shines in 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 a way that, is so amazing yeah that's so character driven those kinds of moments even in network dude that though i mean the ned Beatty monologue in network is crazy but again that moment that grounds it and the moment that that he does that resonates with you where 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 finch looks up at him and goes why are you telling me this and he goes because you're on (laughs) tv dummy (laughs) <laughs> but it, and then like Finch yeah. is oh I've seen the face no, no. of God yeah <laughs> yes yeah and, and what's so great about it is if in talking about television and he's t- talking about the influence of television right right and, but there's it, that moment where he's going you have meddled with the primal force and then he, <laughs> then he stops and goes am I getting through to you you like that <laughs> like he stops the pitch to go like yeah. oh that's great yeah. man is great shit. I mean, look, television is one of the uh, the forces that has changed mankind in in ways that we still have yet to understand. I mean, even going back to uh, talking about you know um, stars and strife and everything else in terms of the world that we live in today, yeah. television television's influence is so gigantic. In terms of it has shaped everything, and certainly in terms of politics, because politics is all based on television. It seems to me that that you know, outside of whatever experience you had in, in the slow build to uh, you know becoming the writer and then the director, it seemed like you know that the future was sort of laid out for you in that control room in Baltimore. In in that essence, true, <laughs> but you can't see it in advance. I mean, you know, you can't you can't go. Oh, here we go. Yeah. I mean, just the puppet experience alone, and the you know realizing how things fit together, and then you know troubleshooting when you you don't even have to. I mean, that moment where the guys like uh, we're n- now we're going to show you the beginning of the movie. I mean, you know, that's a that's an important lesson to learn. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's a, you know, no, no, no. It's fun because you know if you go all the way back to Ranger Hal, 
right? Where oh, that was a local, a local uh, uh, yeah. children's show. Yeah, yeah, nine to ten. Yeah, and you you would do the hand puppets, and and I I, I it, it seems odd to say this, but you know, the idea I was doing the hand puppets, and we would play like a Beatles song, yeah. and they they had never done that, you know, and right. I had. Marvin Monkey, you know, is Ringo Starr playing, you know, the drums and things, you know, yeah. <laughs> just you know, make up some crazy stuff, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, full, full creative freedom. Yes. Yeah. It's whatever you can figure out to go do. And you grab some stuff and you try different things. And uh, some stuff, you know, actually got a little attention, you know, but uh, it, it, it was like, what would you do here? You got some puppets, you know, little hand puppets. What can you do with them? And then you start to figure out, but well, this might be fun. Yeah. And then those puppets you know? become, you know, Pacino and De Niro and Hoffman. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. You, you did good. You did all right for yourself. You, you, you're dealing with top notch puppets now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Hadn't thought of it in those terms. <laughs> It was great, great talking to you, Barry. Uh, it's fun. Yeah, man. Take care of yourself. Thank you very much. All right. What a great, that was great. I enjoyed that immensely. Uh, again, his documentary that he produced, Stars and Strife, is now available on most video on demand platforms, and it just started running this week on Stars. I wish I'd remember that Craig T. Nelson was, had a big part. In, and Justice for All, before I watched it the other night, after I talked to Barry. We could have talked a little bit about that, but he must have gotten that gig, right? Here's a little guitar for you. It picks up. It picks up towards the end. It picks up. Here we go. Monkey, LaFonda, all the flying feline angels. (laughs) 